got a card in the mail recently. How many of you still write cards to people? Birthday cards, encouragement cards? A few of you. All right, good. Good to write cards. I got this really nice card in the mail, and it came with, uh, came with this little gift of Play-Doh. Okay, so a few weeks ago, if you were here, we, in our series on Believe, we talked about Pilate, and Pilate had this decision to make between should he let Barabbas, the wicked sinner, go free, or Jesus, the sinless, righteous one, go free. Remember that? And uh, I said, I think even a preschooler could figure that one out. And I gave you a little illustration about two preschool kids that we don't know named Caleb and Mark, right? Two random names that we don't know. And I said that Caleb's a really good boy. Uh, Should we put him in the timeout, or should we put this Mark kid who's always stealing toys from other kids and pushing them down and eating Play-Doh? Uh, should we put him in, in the timeout? Well, I got a nice card in the mail, and it says, Pastor Mark, non-toxic, safe to eat, enjoy. Your friend. Signed. I won't, I won't throw him under the bus who sent me that. Well, that was nice. That was, made me smile. Uh, it was nice to get a nice card. Uh, this person uh, is listening to the sermons and uh, thought enough to send something along just to make me smile. And it's nice to get a card. I I hope that uh, those of you who are in the habit of writing encouragement cards don't stop doing that, because I think uh, in the past, uh, people used to write handwritten letters. I don't know if some of you can remember days when that still happened, but it used to be the days before email and social media, people used to write handwritten letters, and I think it's just a lost art form in today's world. I think we still get these formal letters in the mail that we're not always too jazzed about. Uh, Now, some letters, some formal letters are kind of nice and fun to get, like college admission letters. Those are are always good to get. Uh, Advertising, we get a ton of advertising, formal letters from advertising. Jury duty, summons to jury duty is a formal letter that you might still... My wife gets a ton of those. For some reason, they trust her to be on a jury. I would not. I don't know why they keep sending those letters to her, but, uh, but people don't seem to write handwritten letters, personal ones, as much anymore. Nowadays, it just seems like people want to document their entire lives on social media. They're like, well, I got out of bed, and I ate a bowl of Wheaties, so people need to know about that, and they put it on, on social media. I'd like to go back to I'd like to go back to hand personal uh, written letters. As we're starting this new series, the reason I kind of set all of that up is to make sure you really understand that what we're about to read in 1 Thessalonians was a handwritten, personal letter. Now, that's not to diminish the fact that this is the inspired Word of God that we are about to study. It's not an, it's not any ordinary letter for sure. The Holy Spirit moved in the authors who wrote this so that what we have in front of us is the written, accurate, trustworthy Word of God. But it's also important to remember that this was a personal, handwritten letter written from some people that really cared about the people that they wrote it to. They really cared about what was going on in their lives. And what was going on in their lives when they got this letter was some really difficult things. Some things that I think maybe you and I, in our modern uh, American culture, I think are going to be able to relate to. So I'm going to ask if you would join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the Bible in front of you in the pew there. 
You can also follow along on our digital notes. If you go to gracefellowship.online, hit the digital bulletin, just scroll down there, you'll see the sermon notes for today. And all the verses that I'm going to be reading to you today are right there for you. You can follow along that way if it's helpful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We are writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. Now, this is about as far as we're going to get this morning in studying 1 Thessalonians because I read that verse and I just have a ton of questions. I want to know who these guys are that wrote this letter. Who's Paul and Silas and Timothy? How do they know each other? How did they meet? Uh, why are they writing to these people in Thessalonica? Who are the people of this church in Thessalonica? What's going on in their lives? What caused these men to write this letter to this, to this group of people? And of course, the, the question that may be bouncing around in your mind, why should I care? Why should we care about this ancient letter? What does it have to do with my life today? So I don't know if the questions bouncing around in my mind make you more curious or if maybe they have you a little bit more concerned about the fact that we got stuck on verse 1 in week 1. And you're thinking to yourself, man, at this rate, it is going to take us 31,103 weeks to get through this entire letter, because that's how many verses are in this letter. Yeah, I took the time to look it up, 31,103. I don't know if it'll take us that long, but we're going to take our time and we're going to walk through this letter. I think it's going to be super, super helpful to us. I think it's going to be inspiring. I think it's going to be really challenging as we seek to live a Jesus-centered life in a culture that looked a lot like the culture of Thessalonians. So let's just start with who wrote the letter. I'm not going to assume that everyone in the room, that everyone on the other side of that camera knows who these guys are. If you know uh, who Paul and Silas and Timothy are, that's awesome. Maybe some of the stuff I'll share about them, maybe you didn't know. So hang in there with me if you know who these guys are. Paul was originally named Saul. That was his birth name, Saul. And when he was still Saul, he was a Pharisee who persecuted Christians. Like He made a career out of chasing down Christians, putting them in prison, and at times even having them executed. That's who Saul was. And that changed in Acts chapter 9. So if you'd look at that with me in Acts chapter 9, this is what happened in Saul's life when he became Paul, the Paul that we know, the writer of the New Testament. Acts 9.1, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath. He was eager to kill the Lord's followers. That's Saul. He went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. The way is uh, what they called Jesus' followers at that time. Now, if he found any, what did he want to do? He wanted to bring them back to Jerusalem. Men and women, he wanted to bring them back in chains. Well, here's what happened on the way there. Verse 3, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Jesus then sent a man named Ananias to go and minister to Paul. Paul repented of his sin, he was baptized, and he became Paul, the Paul we know, the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known. He planted churches all over the Roman Empire, wrote most of the New Testament. That's Paul. Silas, some of you, depending on the version that you have in your lap, you might have the, the name Silvanus, that's his proper name. I think Silas was like a nickname. But he was a leader in the Jerusalem church. And he was so highly respected as a leader, he was such a good communicator, that he was selected by that church for a special mission. Now that mission is described for us in Acts 15, if you want to look at that with me. There was a there was a church in Antioch that was predominantly Gentile believers, and it was growing, and some amazing things happening there. And uh, some people had showed, uh, they showed up uh, at that church, and they said, these people, these Gentiles need to get circumcised uh, before they get saved. And so there was this big discussion over whether or not someone needed to be circumcised to be saved. So Paul and Barnabas, they came back to Jerusalem, and they set up this big meeting with a bunch of church leaders, and they debated this, and they discussed this to come to a conclusion. Does a person need to be circumcised in order to be saved? And that's what chapter 15 is all about. And they came to this conclusion that, no, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. The gospel is faith in Christ alone to forgive us of our sins, make us right with God. It's not based on works or anything that we do uh, externally. And so uh, after this big discussion, they come to this conclusion, and they said, what we need to do is write a letter to the believers in Antioch with our decision, a formal decision on this question. And we're going to send it along with Paul and Barnabas, but we also want to make sure that there's credibility. So we're going to send two leaders from our church here in Jerusalem along just so that the letter itself is viewed as it has the stamp of approval, it has the credibility from the church in Jerusalem. And so they decide to pick two guys. One of them, in verse 22 of chapter 15, we find out one of the two guys is Silas. He was that well respected. That was a pretty big mission, right? That's a pretty big deal. And uh, he was one of the guys that they, that they chose for that mission. That's how Paul and Silas met. They met over this controversy over circumcision. And then we find out how they became ministry partners in chapter 15, verse 36. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how the believers are doing. Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Paul said, that he, he bailed on us. I don't trust him. I don't trust to take him along. And Paul and Barnabas went back and forth on this, and their disagreement over this was so sharp, it says, 
in verse 39 that they separated ways. Barnabas, he took John Mark with him to Cyprus, and Paul chose, verse 40, Silas to accompany him, and they went to encourage believers elsewhere. They went into Syria and and Sicilia. That's how they met. That's how they became ministry partners. It was all over these uncomfortable conflicts that were going on, and God used it to bring these two guys together, and they did some incredible things in missionary work and church planting. And then there's Timothy. Timothy was just a young man when when he met Paul in Lystra. His story is in chapter 16. Paul went first to Derbe and then to Lystra, where there was this young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers, not only in Lystra, but in another town, Iconium. So Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. Now, this is interesting, and I'll take a minute in just a minute to explain it, but just walk through it here. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. I'm sure there's questions bouncing around in your mind. Wait a minute. Wasn't it Paul and Silas that took a letter to Antioch that said that you didn't need to be circumcised uh, for salvation? What's this all about? It's a valid question. I'll take a minute here and talk about it. So they went from town to town instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. (laughs) That's the one we just talked about. So the churches were strengthened in their faith, and they grew larger every day. Now, I understand there's some things in there that are a little confusing. We'll just take it step by step so that we have, I think, hopefully a clear understanding of what's happening. First of all, let's talk about Timothy's parents. Timothy's mom was Jewish by culture, but she apparently was not committed to the, the religious life. Of, of a Jew. She, we know that because she married a Greek man, which was against Jewish law. We know that because Timothy was not circumcised as a child. That's against Jewish law. We also know from uh, this story that uh, she became a follower of Jesus, which was not popular in the Jewish community. So it appears as though Timothy's mom was not very religious until she became a follower of Jesus Christ, and then everything changed for her. So much so that Timothy grew up knowing the Word of God. He was so mature in his faith. She did such a, a great job raising Timothy uh, that uh, he, was, he was so mature that he had this really good reputation, not only in Lystra, but even in another town people knew about Timothy. They had such impressive things to say about him that Paul invited him to come along on these mission, missionary trips and, and be trained in ministry. Let's talk a little bit about the, the whole circumcision thing because it's kind of confusing, especially since Paul and Silas were the ones who, uh, who went to Antioch together to tell the Gentiles they didn't need to be circumcised to be, to be saved. First point, Timothy was already saved. This is not a... a is he saved, not saved issue. He was already saved. That's not what this was about. It tells us here in 
in, uh, in chapter 16, everybody in that community knew that his father was a Greek. And the strategy that Paul used to go into a new city, every time he would go into a new city, the first thing he would do would go to a Jewish synagogue in that town, in that city, and then he would walk through the scriptures with the people that were gathered there. You would have Jewish people. Sometimes you would have God-fearing Gentiles that would come to synagogue. And he would walk through these scriptures with them and showing them that uh, the Messiah that is described in the scriptures was Jesus. And he would just walk it through and he would prove that, that uh, Jesus is who's being talked about. And so in order for Timothy to have greater credibility within the Jewish community, because remember the goal is to take the gospel, they take it, yes, to the Jewish community and, and present it there, but also to the Gentiles, just to have greater credibility among that Jewish community, they decided that Timothy would be, would be circumcised. It wasn't a, a salvation issue. It was a way for them to be able to uh, be effective with the gospel. That's a pretty, you know, you know, you're, you know that you really want to be effective in the gospel and presenting it if you're willing to do that. Now, this is not going to be a, a perfect analogy, but think of it like this. Imagine that you wanted to plant a church in Pittsburgh and you wanted to be effective in sharing the gospel in the city of Pittsburgh, uh, maybe one of the things that you would do just to fit in, just to make sure that that community would, would listen to what you had to say and give you a little bit of credibility, you probably would wear maybe a Pirates jersey or a Steelers jersey. You probably wouldn't go into Pittsburgh and wear a Phillies or a Yankees jersey if you wanted to have a hearing from the people in that community, if you wanted them to take you seriously. Not a perfect illustration by any means, but I think it's kind of in the same ballpark of similarities. Why should we care, though, who wrote the letter? Why would it matter to you and me that it was Paul and Silas and Timothy that sent this letter to the believers in Thessalonica? I think it's proof that that God uses people that we don't expect Him to use. You think about each one of these guys. The last person, if you would have known Paul when he was Saul, when he was running around trying to arrest Christians and put them in chains and have them killed, if you would have known Saul then, if Paul, when he was Saul, he's the last person that you would have expected to trust Christ as his Savior and become the, this incredible missionary and church planter and writer of Scripture. And yet that's exactly what God did with him. And maybe that's you, right? Maybe, maybe where you are in life right now, you are far from God. You have very little interest, uh, and at least you have had very little interest in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. But it's possible that maybe God has been doing something in your life recently that has rattled your soul a bit to the point where you're asking deeper questions. Maybe there's been something going on in your life that has rattled you and you're asking things like, what is on the other side of this life when I die? Or uh, what, what is the purpose and the meaning of life? And I'm chasing all of these things that don't really seem to matter. I don't find fulfillment in them. I, I've been doing this and that and it just doesn't satisfy. There must be something more. Maybe God has been working in your heart and you're asking these questions. Maybe that's why you're even sitting here today, or maybe that's why you're even watching this at home, because God's been doing something in your heart. 
The same gospel that radically changed Paul's life can change your life. Simply start with the fact that you recognize that you are a sinner far from God, that you cannot make yourself right from God, and you believe the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ left heaven and he came and, and uh, took his sinless life, his perfect righteous life, and allowed himself to be crucified on the cross as a sacrifice, as an appeasement against God's wrath for your sin and for my sin. And it was proven that that sacrifice was sufficient when God raised Jesus from the dead. This is why Jesus came. This is what God can do in someone's life. The result of trusting Christ as your forgiver of sin, as your Savior from hell, the result is eternal life. The result is a changed heart. The result is the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you and begins to change you from the inside out, giving you a completely different perspective of the world around you, new desires and and a brand new uh, pursuit in life. It's not all about you, but about Jesus. And that's what God has been doing in your life, and you're ready to take that step of faith. I want to challenge you, and I want to ask you to consider going to our website at gracefellowship.online, and right on the front page, there's a button there that says, I'm ready. I want to challenge you to hit that button and read through uh, it's a very simple explanation of what we, what we refer to as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and how you can move from spiritual death to spiritual life. And if we can help you in any way, answer questions, and, and maybe sit down and have a conversation with you about what it actually means, what does it look like to follow Jesus, we'd love to help you with that. Just reach out to us, and we'll set something up. How about Timothy? Maybe, maybe you can relate to Timothy. He was... He was born into this culturally weird family dynamic. If you would have known Timothy's parents when they first got married, you probably wouldn't have looked at them and thought, you know what, that's probably a family that's going to raise a son that one day is going to become this really influential pastor in a number of cities. Probably not what you would have thought about them. And yet that's what God did. And maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe your background your upbringing, your family story, maybe it's kind of a mess. But God loves to use people that have some messed up stuff in their past because it demonstrates the glory of God. It demonstrates the power of God to change a life. It demonstrates the, 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 the grace of God that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done or where we've been, that God's grace can reach into that person's life and change them, and use them. So maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you relate to Silas. You know, Silas doesn't, doesn't get much of the spotlight in the New Testament. He's kind of like the Robin character, and, you know, Peter and Paul are kind of like the Batman of the stories that we see in, in the New Testament. But here's something I, I didn't really realize until I started studying this more deeply, that Silas, Bible scholars believe that uh, Silas is actually the one who wrote the handwritten letters, that Paul would dictate what was to be written, that it was actually Silas's hand that wrote these letters. There's also some, some evidence that uh, the apostle Peter gave an outline and worked with Silas, but Silas actually wrote, filled in the information and wrote down the letters that bear Peter's name. 
in the New Testament. So if that's true, at the very least, it means that God used someone with really good penmanship and an attention to detail. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's you. Maybe you can't carry a tune. Maybe you can't play an instrument in some of the ministries that are a lot more visible. It doesn't mean that God can't use you to impact other people's lives in a significant way. There's so many behind-the-scenes ministries that make a huge impact in the life of our church. Things that uh, people never, never know who did it. They don't see who did it. But if it didn't get done, you would notice it. And they make an impact. Maybe that's you. 1 Thessalonians 1.1 tells us that Paul and Silas and Timothy, they sent this letter to the believers in, in, Thessal- in Thessalonica. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Thessalonica itself before I talk about the believers who lived there. I think you need to understand some of the background about the city. Thessalonica is a place, actually, that you can still visit today. You know, take your, uh, you can take your stimulus money and get on a plane, and you can go, and now it's not Thessalonica anymore, so make sure you, when you look it up, you get the right place. It's Thessaloniki, and it's in, it's in Greece. It's still a really, uh, really big city. About 815,000 uh, people still live in Thessaloniki in Greece. It's, uh, it's a popular uh, industrial commercial city. It has a really interesting, even modern uh, historical significance to it as well. In World War I, uh, Thessalonica was uh, used as a really important base for the Allies in World War I. And then in World War II... It was captured, it was taken over by Germany. Now, here's why that's significant. Up until that point, they had a pretty substantial uh, Jewish population in Thessalonica. But after World War II, what happened was there were 60,000 Jews who were deported and exterminated. Today, the population, the Jewish population in Thessaloniki is less than 1%. I think it's like 0.27, something like that. And it's because of what happened in World War II. It was named in 315 B.C. by Alexander the Great. He gave it that name, named it after his half-sister. And then later Rome conquered the uh, Macedonia, made Thessalonica the capital city. It's uh, it's got a lot of really great history. So if you want to go visit someplace cool, maybe put that on your bucket list. When Paul wrote uh, this letter, Paul and Silas and Timothy, when they sent this letter, the population of Thessalonica was about 200,000, so a pretty big city. And uh, it would be a lot like some of our modern cities in this sense. It uh, It was defined by some really disgusting idol worship. It was defined by a lot of really bad corruption. It was defined as a city where sexual immorality was not only accepted as normal, it was celebrated. Sound familiar? I think you maybe think of a city or two in, in our modern American culture that might sound like that. And that was the world uh, that the Thessalonian, or the Thessalonian believers lived in. That was their city. Idol worship and corruption and sexual immorality that was just absolutely terrible. And it was on this missionary trip where uh, Paul 
and Silas and Timothy were going from city to city, one of the cities that they went to was Thessalonica. And I want to jump back into the story in chapter 17. Chapter 17, first four verses, Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns, and it names two different towns there, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Remember I told you this was his normal strategy. He would go to a new city, verse 2 says, as was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies, and he proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. And he said, this Jesus that I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. So he was having success. Things were going well. He got three weekends in a row. People were coming to know Christ. Then things start to get sideways in verse 5. In verse 5, it says some of the Jews were jealous, so they, they gathered up some troublemakers from the marketplace. They formed a mob, and they started a riot. And it tells us that when they started this riot, there was this guy named Jason who, uh, who apparently had come to know Christ, and he was... Uh, having Paul and Silas, they were staying in his house, and uh, they went there to find them. Paul and Silas weren't there, so they took Jason. They took him uh, before the authorities, and they said, this, this guy, uh, he, he's part of uh, what Paul and Silas, they're going all over the world, and they're making trouble, and they believe that there's a different king than Caesar. They, they're telling people that there's this King Jesus, and that's not our king. Caesar's our king. And... Uh, and so Paul and Silas had to leave, and they went about 40 miles up the road to a different city. And, and the cancel culture mob from Thessal, uh, Thessalonica followed them and started trouble in that city for them. And so Paul wound up having to, to leave that city as well and go to Athens. Silas and Timothy, they stay put for a while, and eventually they met up again in Corinth sometime later, and that, when they met back up, that's when they wrote, that's when they wrote this letter. Why? Why would they write this letter? They were only there three weeks, maybe a little bit longer, right? doesn't necessarily mean they were only there three weeks, but it probably wasn't too much longer than that until they had to leave. It's a pretty short stay. Why did they write them this letter? If you go back to 1 Thessalonians 2, it actually, I think, gives us the reason why they wrote, why they wrote this letter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse 17. Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, and we know why, we just read why, our hearts never left you. We tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. They love these people. They fell in love with them, and they cared about what was going on in their lives. Verse 18, we wanted very much to come to you. I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. After all, what gives us hope and joy? And what will be our proud reward and crown And uh, as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It's you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. Here's what they did. So finally, in, in chapter 3, he says, finally, we couldn't take it anymore. We decided... To stay alone in Athens, they sent Timothy back to check on 
the church in Thessalonica. Timothy went to see how things were going. He found the persecution was, was really rough. But he also found that uh, they were strong in their faith. They were still a Jesus-centered church. And that thrilled Paul's heart. And so they wrote this letter uh, to them to encourage them and to let them know that they were thinking about them and praying for them and wanted to encourage them in the faith. So yes, they genuinely loved them and, and wanted to see them continue to be a Jesus-centered church. Here's why I think this letter matters to you and I in our modern American experience. The believers in Thessalonica show us what it looks like to live a Jesus-centered life, to be a Jesus-centered church in a culture that hates Jesus. In a, in a, in a, in a culture that, that wants to uh, wipe out Christians from, from the culture. Much of our American cultural experience today is ancient Thessalonica. It mirrors in so many different ways. I want to give you just a couple examples. As we walk through this letter together, I'll give you more, but I'm just going to give you two this morning. The NCAA basketball, the college basketball tournament, uh, just ended up, I think, last week. I don't know if you, I don't know if you watch it, don't watch it, doesn't matter. I don't, I didn't watch it. I don't even know who won. Don't care. Who won? Don't care. No, I'm just kidding. No. Baylor won. Whoever Baylor is, right? So, uh, here's something I think you should care about, though. In in that tournament, there was a there's a team in the tournament from Oral Roberts University. Oral Roberts University is a solid Christian school, conservative. They believe in the Bible as their standard for life. USA Today wrote a feature article on the Oral Roberts basketball team, but it wasn't because of the success, the unexpected success they were having. They actually made it way farther into the tournament than anyone expected. They were pretty, pretty low ranked, and uh, they, they overturned or upset, rather, two pretty high-ranking teams and went much farther in the tournament than anyone expected. So you think, oh, okay, USA Today, uh, the sports section is probably going to write a feature article about that. That's what you would expect, and that's not what the article was about. No, the article uh, went on to say that Oral Roberts University, that their college basketball team should be removed from the tournament. They should not be allowed to play in the tournament. Why? What did they do? You know what they did? They believe that the Bible is true. They believe that this is their standard for life. And that is unpalatable in our modern American culture. And they made an argument that because of what they believe about the Bible, that it's true, and that that's how they want to live life, that, uh, that they should be kicked out of the tournament. I don't know how many of you knew that, but I bet you didn't hear a big uproar in our, in our, uh, in our culture, did you? Like, can you imagine, now that you're hearing this, you're like, well, I don't like that. That's not good. That was written in USA Today. And you probably, some of you never even knew that that happened, that that was written. You know why? Because our culture, for the most part, agrees with that. That if you believe the Bible is true, 
If you believe that this is our standard for life, you are now unpalatable in our polite society. Let me give you another current example, the Equality Act. Maybe some of you have heard about the Equality Act. Sounds nice, right? We like equality. The Equality Act has been passed by the House of Representatives. It is now in the Senate chamber, awaiting them to do whatever it is they're going to do with it. If the Equality Act becomes law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is what protects churches like us from a lot of the, the cultural things like forcing us uh, to, uh, to accept same-sex marriage and other things, that, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act protects us. If the Equality Act is made law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act will have no power over it. They, they wrote it that way. It says right in uh, the language that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, is null and void uh, when it comes to what this law will be. So what does that mean in practical terms? It means that if, if Pastor Caleb shows up to church wearing uh, a dress and telling us that he's no longer Pastor Caleb, that he wants to be called Pastor Kathy, it would be illegal against the law to fire him. If I started doing same-sex marriages in this church, it would be illegal against the law to fire me. I'm telling you right now, I would hope you would shut this place down before you would let that happen. That's not the end of it, though. It also defines abortion in terms that is connected to sex discrimination. It defines pregnancy as a medical condition that cannot be prevented because if you prevent it, you are discriminating on the basis of sex. Here's what that means in practical terms. The Hyde Amendment is the law that says that our taxpayer dollars cannot be used to perform abortion. If this goes into effect, that means the Hyde Amendment is in jeopardy because it is in conflict with the Equality Act. Now, maybe there's, there's a lot more examples, and as we walk through, I'll give you some more. Maybe you know these things are going on, maybe you didn't. But if you have a little bit more of awareness of some of the stuff that's happening, it might have you on edge. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're like, man, it just gets worse and worse, and you're a little, on, a little on edge about it. And maybe you didn't know this stuff was going on. Maybe you don't pay attention until it actually touches you. You're like, I don't, I don't go to Oral Roberts University. What do I care? So maybe you don't have a lot of awareness of some of the things that are happening in our culture because it hasn't touched you yet. And I'm just... I just wanted to say this to you. Give it a minute. Give it a minute because it's coming. Living a Jesus-centered life is now unpalatable in our American culture. It's unacceptable. Those who have power, those who have influence, no longer see those of us who believe the Bible is true and a standard for life as being acceptable in polite society. 
this letter is going to challenge us to live a Jesus-centered life anyway. This letter is going to challenge us to be a Jesus-centered church anyway. It also, I think, is really encouraging. There's a, over, uh, a recurring theme throughout this letter and into the second Thessalonians, the second letter, this recurring theme is this, that Jesus is coming back, which is a, a great comfort to those of us who, who know that this, this persecution towards, towards Christians has been going on in, in, in the world, in our modern world, for quite a while. It just hasn't touched us yet. Give it a minute. But it's great comfort to know that it's not forever, that Jesus is coming back. But I also want to say, I hope that this letter will be a soul-rattling warning to those of you who haven't trusted Christ yet, because Jesus is coming back. I have a big challenge for you, right? Week one, we got through one verse. Now, I know we looked at a bunch of scripture, right? But week one, big challenge. I want to challenge you this week to sit down sometime and read through the entire letter in one sitting. Now, it's only five chapters. It's not going to take you that long. So if you can get through it multiple times, awesome. But at least once, sit down in one sitting and read the entire letter and, and read it as though you are reading a letter written from some people that love some other people and care about what's going on in their lives. Because they were hurting. This church was facing some severe persecution for following Jesus. Here's the second part of that challenge. I also want to challenge you this week to write a personal handwritten letter to yourself. Answering this question that's on the screen. What does a Jesus-centered life, what does a Jesus-centered church look like in a culture that hates Jesus and hates his followers? What does that look like? As you read this letter, Write a handwritten note or a handwritten letter to yourself of what that looks like and what that means based on what you're reading. Now, you really want to go deep with it. Do it chapter by chapter. Read chapter 1 and answer that question. Read chapter 2 and answer the question. What does it look like to live a Jesus-centered life? What is it, what is it, what's a Jesus-centered church look like in a culture that hates Jesus? I think we're going to uh, have a really good time walking through. Uh, there's going to be some tough stuff we're going to talk about in this letter, but I think you're going to be inspired. I think you're going to be challenged. I think we're going to be uh, better Jesus followers from this. I think we're going to be a, a, a better church family as we walk through, as a result of walking through this letter together. So I want to encourage you to make sure you're here every week.